One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. back to the Forma podcast from the Circe Institute Podcast Network, a podcast about the intersection of classical thoughts and contemporary culture and the audio companion to Forma Journal. I'm Heidi White. And in this episode, I am talking with Tim McIntosh, teacher, actor, playwright, man extraordinaire with many talents, the man of many ways. I uh, know those. I know. I think I'm doing great. Now, those of you who've been around Forma and its parent organization, the Circe Institute, will recognize Tim McIntosh right away as a friend and collaborator in many projects over at the Circe Institute. Uh, particularly, one I'm interested in is over at the Close Reads Podcast Network. Uh, so Tim and David Kern and I and a few other book-loving folks are co-conspirators over there on the flagship Close Reads show, uh, where we read books and talk about them. And at The Play is the Thing, which is a show that is all Shakespeare all the time. Uh, if any of you are formal listeners and subscribers, but not yet Close Reads listeners, please join us over on the Close Reads podcast network, where you will get a further taste of hilarity and profundity in the interactions between the one and only Tim McIntosh and me and others, particularly from Tim, of course. But today we're not talking about books, but the theater. So, Tim, I invited you onto the Forma podcast to talk about your other life, your theater life, uh, specifically your work as a playwright. So, at Forma, we are always interested in people like you who dwell at the intersection of classical thoughts and contemporary culture. So, let's go back in time a little bit, Tim. Tell us about your interest in the theater, how it developed, and then how it became more than an interest, a vocation. I started writing i can i can tell you almost the exact day i had written professionally my entire life but i went to a barnes and noble do you remember barnes and noble those wow things? like a brick and mortar bookstore i hear about those <laughs> i went into a barnes and noble i am a big fan of philosophy and so i was browsing the philosophy section 
And they had one of these little kind of like philosophy for beginners books. It's almost like a coloring book series that they did in which they have graphic artists that kind of accompany the philosopher or the philosophy that they're describing. And I'm a big, if you listen to Close Reads, you know, I really like this 19th century Danish philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard. So I was like, oh, this is interesting, a graphic novel about Soren Kierkegaard. I opened up the first page and it had a picture of three people in Kierkegaard's life, real historical characters in his real life. It was his best friend who was the editor of something like Forma magazine, a guy named Meyer Goldschmidt, uh, his fiance and his father. And, and the page said you could tell the story of Soren Kierkegaard's life through his relationship with these three characters. And I thought, now that is a great idea for a play. And so I went home. I think I went home that day or sometime that week and I wrote a scene and I kind of had this hazy idea that I would turn this thing into a play. So I started writing scene upon scene upon scene and I had no idea of craft. I had no idea of, of, I was not well versed in the theater at the time. I had done no acting. I had not been to many plays, but I started compiling this play and I worked on it and worked on it and worked on it. And I finally produced a very, very bad play. And that was, I mean, it was awful. I would go back and I could like, I think I still have the, some really early drafts and I can barely make it through a page without just my feeling a little bit nauseated. It's, it was not good, but I learned the craft and I also, I decided to try to learn how to act so that I could write for actors. Instead, I was kind of writing for readers, which is not what a playwright ought to do. I, I needed to learn to write for actors. And so I learned how to act and I learned what words that I, as an actor, some, you, like when you read some playwrights, you can just hear the kind of natural human voice cadence that's coming from their pen and you want to say those words. Um, and then other playwrights, it's harder to hear the human cadence behind the writing and it's, you're not as inclined. So I wanted to write for kind of like the heartbeat of the human voice and learn how to do that. And I figured a good way to start was not just writing, but actually trying to act the words. Wow. So I'm, I'm interested in a lot of things about what you just said, but I want to hone in on something you said at the beginning. What, in reading that Kierkegaard graphic yeah. novel, <laughs> what made you think of a play, especially since that wasn't your primary uh, medium as a writer at that point? What made you think of that? And the question behind the question, which I'd like you to address yeah. there, is what does live theater offer that's unique as a medium? I think... I have always been really interested in what, what big ideas feel like, if that makes any sort of sense. Like, I, I'm not great at just sitting down and plowing through 300 pages of philosophy. Not that many people are, but I, I do have friends that that is a delight to them. But what I am, I'm always curious to know what it feels like to inhabit the world of a particular philosophy. And for me, theater was a way to kind of show what ideas 
felt like. And, and Kierkegaard was a particularly fascinating subject because he lived out, I mean, genuinely tried to live out what he believed for good and for ill. And so for me, it just seemed really conducive to try to make a story in which this guy, this really um, articulate, thoughtful, passionate Danish, um, this isolated Dane was trying his best to live in real shoes in real time what his philosophy consisted of. Hmm. Hmm. And theater was the way. Why yeah, did that feel way. like a play to you? Not a, not a novel, not a short story, not a poem, but yeah, a yeah. play. I think it was, it was more that I was just attracted to theater. I've, before getting involved as an actor, I can't say that I went to a ton of theater. I wasn't a junkie or anything like that. Um, but I did go to several plays. And I remember on a couple of occasions having that feeling where you completely forget that you're in a theater watching other people. You just lose sense that you're a self, an audience member. You feel like you're up there. And that had happened to me a couple of times. And so this is going to be an answer to the other part of your question. There's something for me about theater when you can actually hear the actors breathing and you can see like the spit coming out of their mouth when they're trying to articulate words to the audience. It gets into me. It gets inside of me in a way that nothing else does like movies. I love a great movie, but it doesn't have the kind of emotional resonance of being in front of live actors. And I think part of that, at least, is that there's always, there's, I think there's two things. There's always the possibility that the play will fail abysmally because there's no safety. If an actor sprains his ankle in the middle of a scene, or if an actress forgets her lines, there's, <laughs> there's nowhere to go. You can't hide. And there's, a, there's something thrilling about the possibility of, um, of operating without a safety net. And the other thing is just what I've said before. It is the ultimate embodied art form. Um, maybe as much as, you know, as much as dance is, but for me, it's, it's so compelling because it's an articulation of a story and stories. And this is like an ultimate lesson of the classics. Stories are a vessel of meaning. You know, they tell us what the individual characters want, believe, value, and it gives those characters a shape to their lives. And that shape is um, an arbiter of meaning. And especially, I think, in a, we, we live in a very secularized world, unlike, say, the medieval world that was constantly inhabited with the, with the symbols and tropes of, like, the past, it feels like we're rushing so rapidly toward a kind of unknown future that meaning is always kind of slipping out of our fingers. We're constantly seeking for some sort of, we're manufacturing meaning. Um, and so it's why stories, I think, have become so vital and crucial and necessary and why people are chasing after them so much because I think there's this feeling that meaning is always 
slipping through our fingers. It's not, it's not ready at hand in the way that a medieval person's life would be much harder, physically harder, presumably. But I think that the meaning of life, even something as tragic as losing a loved one to illness, there was a sense that we knew why it was happening and we could tell ourselves we were kind of like, there's a sense that we were living in a story that made sense of what was often kind of like a very brutal and mundane kind of existence, but meaning was more ready at hand. Right. So somehow that seems to me that you're talking about incarnation, right? Mm -hmm. The embodying of an idea through actors making choices and expressing emotions and telling a story in the community that's taking place on stage in the presence of real live people. Yeah. So one of the buzzwords in classical education and around, you know, amongst people like us who are interested in classical ideas is incarnation, the embodiment of ideas. We talk about that a lot, but it's gotten to the point somehow that sometimes I think it sounds like jargon. I had somebody recently say, what does that even mean? You talk about that all the time. I need a glossary to understand what you people talk about. And, and, and so I think, that's a fit. I think that's fair. And it's become something that is so meaningful to us, people who are kind of immersed in that life and that conversation yeah. with our students and in our books and in these conversations that we have. Sometimes people don't know exactly what that means. Can you talk about, about the embodying of idea, the translation of big ideas to concrete action? Yeah, yeah. Let me talk about it first like as an actor, and then I'll try to talk about it as a teacher. So as an actor, embodying an idea is, in some ways, it's the whole goal. Not that, not that a play is just a bag of ideas. It shouldn't be that. It's more often a conflict of relationships, and sometimes it ends up being a conflict of ideas. And I think there are a couple of writers that I love, Shakespeare being one of them, Dostoevsky being another one, who are exemplary in articulating ideas through characters that kind of that embody those ideas. So there's a moment in Hamlet, I played Hamlet three years ago, and there's a moment where he's talking with his friends, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, and they're wondering why he's so blue, why he's so sad. And he has this wonderful line in which he kind of confesses to them that he is profoundly depressed. Um, And the lines are, I have of late, but wherefore I know not lost all my mirth, forgone all custom of exercises. And indeed it goes so heavily with my disposition. And this is the part that really stuck out to me that this goodly frame, the earth seems to me nothing but a sterile promontory, the most excellent canopy, the air, Look at you, this brave o'erhanging firmament, this majestical roof fretted with golden fire, while it seems to me nothing but a foul and pestilent congregation of vapors. And then he goes on to talk about what a miracle human beings are. And he says, none of it holds any joy for him. None of it holds any joy for him. And I was memorizing that, and maybe we've all felt this way, but I've certainly felt that way, that in my kind of like my darkest moments that even the the night sky 
and all of the stars in the night sky just evoke nothing for me. And it's, it's awful. It's tragic and it's sad. And I don't want to feel that way. And the majority of the time I don't feel that way, but to have, to be memorizing those lines and to be able to recall feeling that feeling that Hamlet is articulating to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. It talk about embodying lines. It was so easy to know what it feels like. Hmm. So I'll talk about it as a teacher. I think teaching the classics, especially to slightly older students who can grapple with them. I think especially part of the reason I'm such a big believer in Christian classical education is because it, it is, it offers two things that are just crucial for a great education. It's almost like in breathing, you have to both inhale and you have to exhale. Mm. And I think the Christian classical education movement has these kind of two exercises. One of them is the Christian understanding of the world is like a baseline, a baseline, robust, absolutely compelling vision of the way that the world is creation, conflict, redemption, salvation. And students hear that and they can calibrate that world according to that. It's like the inhale and the exhale is again, especially for older students, that baseline held in contrast with other stories about the world. I think of, of Marx, of Karl Marx, 19th century economics philosopher. He has a story, a complete story of the world. The world is a power argument between the people who have money and power and the people that don't. And if you've never read Marx, it's easy to kind of dismiss him because he's associated with communism, et cetera, et cetera. But if you actually read him, his critique of the weaknesses of capitalism, they're incredibly profound. And so I think as a teacher, to inhabit both of those things, to inhabit, really inhabit the Christian tradition in all of its glory, and also be willing to kind of step into the shoes and shirt and coat of Marx and articulate as best as you can why he's so profound, why he has lasted and made such a big impact on the world. To be able to inhabit both of those while with students, I think is, it's incarnational and it's the best kind of education that I can imagine. Oh, here's, here's what I love about what you're saying. First, I want to say something that happened yesterday. I was teaching... And I'm teaching the Iliad right now. Yeah. I, and I have high schoolers and um, homeschoolers there. So it's a two day a week hybrid school. And they, and I, I teach them Mondays and Wednesdays mornings for a, a chunk of time. And I love it. And mm. I'm seeing these kids. Most of them have never read it before or only read children's versions. They're younger high schoolers, ninth and 10th graders. And um, I said, one of the students asked me, you know, is there any evidence that these people were real? Oh, and, yeah. she, and she was saying it like, please tell me yes. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah and, right. And I said, no, we have historical evidence that the Trojan War happens, that it, you know, there's archaeological evidence, blah, blah, blah. I kind of got into that a little bit. And, but I said, no, these people 
Mm. People weren't. And those, this young man in my class, um, oh, and I said, but I wish they were because they feel so real to me. <laughs> and this young man in my class who'd never read the classics before, never, this was his first year. This is his first year in classical education. He'd just been homeschooled, um, kind of using other, other ways. And he said, I thought the same thing. They just feel so real mm-hmm. to me. And that, like hearing that from my student after three weeks of class, where in book six, you know, this is Hector on the wall mm. talking to his wife Andromache about, and she's begging him to stay and not go to war, and they never see each other again. Mm. It's so human. It's not head knowledge, it's not yeah. theory. Neither is Plato or Aristotle either, but people don't know that, right? So, right, right. but this. And just to hear this young man say, I wish these people were real because they feel so real to me. That What a moment. That's like the crown of glory to me. There's nothing greater that a student could say other than these ideas feel like they have come to life in these characters. And as a teacher, at that point, your work is kind of done. I mean, it's nothing done, but like, I've, I've heard the quote attributed to a hundred different people. I'm going to attribute it to Socrates because that's why I want to have said it. Um, <laughs> education is not the filling of the vessel with the lighting of a flame. Right. Like that young man in your classroom, the flame just got lit. He cares now. And right. now he just needs a little bit of direction, but the boat is moving forward. Mm-hmm. Wind is in the sails. Right. Yeah. A, what a great story. Well, and we get to, you know, as teachers, to your point, as teachers, we get to kind of light them, hopefully, if we're doing our jobs and if the soil is planted right, if they are, if their hearts are willing to come alive, hopefully we kind of ignite that. We bring a spark. But what is unique about artists like you, Tim, is that you then get to create in this generation something that might potentially unlock that same fire um, because salvation is our goal, right? It isn't to teach the classics. I'm doing air quotes right now. That's that's not our goal. Our goal right. is that there's some kind of mystery we all are trying to uh, to enter into. Yes. Through teaching or through creation yeah. or through reading or whatever. So what you're doing now and writing plays now, because we could easily say, okay, well, everything great that will ever be written has already been written. Right. Why do it today? What would you say to those people who say, okay, well, if I'm not going to be Plato or Homer, like why try? Yeah. I think that is a very real concern. And I think if once you've been exposed to the classics, you realize how high the bar can be and it might, it might, frighten you it might frighten people away from the attempt because there's this kind of like preset concern yeah that i'll never be plato or i'll never i mean when i read shakespeare that's how i feel constantly i think oh my goodness there's and he did this 37 times 37 different plays like one of these any almost any one of these would be like a world-class world time. And he did this 37 times and boy, I can get it in my head about, you know, it's time to give up to him because 
there's there's no meeting him where he is. But <laughs> Shakespeare did not get where he got without two things, at least. Exposure to the best of what had been said. What is it? The best of what has been said and thought, the Matthew Arnold line. He was exposed to the best and he had to climb a lot himself. And the other thing that, that Shakespeare did was he worked exceptionally hard and he practiced and he practiced and he practiced and he practiced. And he also had an incredible God-given ability, but without any of those three things, we wouldn't have him. If he had not, if he had not been exposed to the things that he was exposed to, if he did not work hard and if he didn't have that kind of inborn ability, then we wouldn't have Hamlet or Romeo and Juliet and much ado. And there's so much tremendous, incredible art that's being done now by remarkable people that most of us have never heard of. Because I, th- I think that we haven't heard of them for a variety of different reasons that we could talk about if we want to. But they face the same kind of worries that I face and that you face, Heidi, when we think about these classics and how hard they are to emulate. But these incredible artists got out of bed and they went to work and they got past that worry and they're generating incredible stuff, just incredible stuff. Mm. So it's a balance, isn't it? Because you want to aspire. Right. You want to aspire to, to real quality and greatness. And the moment of aspiration is also the moment that you could condemn yourself for not being up to the task. And that is, that is like spiritually and psychologically a profoundly difficult line to walk. Right. And so how, you know, that, I mean, there's that kind of stereotype of the depressed artist, right? Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. Um, is that in your experience, I'm not asking you to, you know, confess all your deep, dark secrets here on the air, but is that, is that a real struggle for artists? Yeah. Oh, I'll talk about myself. I mean, I think it, it absolutely is. I don't, I don't know if it always has that same, that kind of depression or torturedness that, um, has kind of become synonymous with artistic endeavors. I think part of it is aspirational. It comes right. from sort of like this heavy weight of I don't know, I don't know how I'm going to ever reach the kind of level that I want to achieve. And I think there are other reasons also that the idea of a tortured artist has become, I don't know, kind of a trope. I, I will say something though. There's I saw a graph recently. I wish I could summon it from the internet so I could be real accurate with it. But it was basically a guy had done a lot of research, qualitative research about um, the feeling of either expertise or the feeling of being an imposter that people who are excelling in their fields often feel. So the chart looked like basically it was an X, Y graph. And on the vertical part, um, there was the feeling that I'm an expert in my field. At the top of the line chart would be, I am an absolute expert. I am great. I've got this, nothing to worry about. And then the Y axis, the horizontal axis was, um, 
actual experience in the field. So huh. this is whether it has to do with engineering or writing, what have you. And so if you can imagine this, the less exposure that people had in the field, the more that they considered themselves to be expert. So, you know, they've got one month of writing. I'm, an, I'm a great writer. I'm an expert writer. But the deeper they got into it, huh. the more experience they got, the more that expertise feeling internally dropped. Like, and it drops like a stone. There's a line. You can watch it drop like a stone. But then as the Y line expands, they get more and more experience. They go from this feeling of, oh goodness, I'm an imposter. I can't do this. I'm not worthy of this. And then they actually start to grow in actual experience and they can actually evaluate accurately how good they are in their field. That has been so true for me. Mm -hmm. Um, When I started writing the Kierkegaard play, I thought, I can do this. I'm an expert. I know Soren Kierkegaard pretty well. And I've seen a couple plays. I'm an expert. And then I had, I mean, I crashed. I really crashed and realized, no, you don't know what you're doing. As a matter of fact, you're bad at this. But I just kept going. I just kind of couldn't walk away from it. And gradually, through just lots of pain and a lot of time at the craft, I realized, okay, I've gotten, I'm pretty good at this now. I'm not where I want to be. I'm not where some of the artists, some of the other playwrights that I really admire, I'm not where they are. But I've started to have confidence that, yeah, work pays off. I can see that I'm better than I was last year and profoundly better than I was 10 years ago. Right. So what, what advice then do you have for the people who are kind of at the beginning of that journey, you know, our students, um, you know, I have writers talk to me pretty often and I definitely feel that I was sitting on the couch talking to my husband, Scott, about that last night. Like, man, I, when I first started my professional journey, I thought I was going to be amazing. Like I thought, whatever natural talent I have will just keep growing and carry me through. And then the more, you know, isn't it Socrates who actually does say something along the lines of the more, you know, the more, you know, you don't know, right? right. Which is why the classics have something to offer because these people thought of that, you know, by the time our savior was born, these thoughts were already very ancient. um, And he perfected them, but they were out there floating in the world. Right. And so that is what advice would you have for the people who want to create great art in this generation who do love the great tradition yeah. and, but know they're probably not going to be Dante or Shakespeare or Homer. Is it still yeah. worth doing? Yeah. It's absolutely, it's not just like worth doing. It's a, I feel like it's a mandate. Like it must be done. Mm-hmm. It, it must be done. If, if narratives, especially because I have such a proclivity toward narratives, plays, novels, movies, if narratives are kind of the vehicle for meaning, then the, then the opportunity for the artist is, I mean, it, it sounds overblown, but it's to, it's to hold out the possibility of meaning for the people who see, who read, who hear your stuff. It's to help them organize their internal and external lives in such a way that it, like, that their lives 
matter. I mean, like, there's nothing higher that you can possibly offer a person. So yes, it must be done. The, piece, the advice that I have for someone who is starting is I would give two pieces of advice. One is the part that's going to be hard and one is the part that's going to be easier. You have to expose your stuff to fresh air, meaning you have to make it available for people to read and to see. And that's the scare. It's the scariest thing in the world, but there's no way around that. I'll, I'll tell a quick story and then I'll come with like the salve at the end of the, the pain. Um, I wrote a play. This is like the Kierkegaard play oh. still. And I felt like I had a really good draft. So I got several friends of mine to meet up with me in this big old, um, this big old church in North High Shoals, Georgia. And I had probably a dozen or 15 people come and I gave them different parts. And one of them was my friend, Daniel, who is best actor in Atlanta, two or three years running. He would like won the vote for best, best actor in the city. He was a brilliant actor. And I wanted him, of course, to play Kierkegaard. And he gave it, we started reading it and he gave it everything that he had. And even Daniel couldn't make it sound good. Not because Daniel lacked anything as an actor. He didn't, but because the text that I gave him was just so bad. And I, it was humiliating, Heidi. It was humiliating. Of course it was. Nobody was out to humiliate me, you know, like everybody was so encouraging, but it was awful. And I wanted to quit. I mean, I wanted to quit so bad. And I've had one other experience like that. I just wanted to quit. But I, I was either like, well, I'm either going to learn from it and get better or I'm going to quit and all of that will be for naught. So that seems like an easy choice. I'm just right. going to keep, I'm just going to try to learn from it despite the pain to my ego. Hmm. So keep putting it out there. Keep putting it out there and keep working, keep working. Now, the the good, I think the thing that you have to have that a lot of people don't have is someone who is not their mom who really wants them to succeed. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Right. Somebody further along in the journey. Yes, that's right. Because, I mean, my mom believes that whatever I do is like, absolutely just the best thing ever. And it's, I mean, I love my mom for that. Right. But my mom's not in the craft of playwriting. So find someone who is, who is a friend who really, really cares about you and who wants you to succeed in your endeavors and like, just ask them to read your stuff, ask them to read your stuff, because if they want you to succeed, they will, season their reading with care for you. And sometimes it's such a scary process that you've got to have somebody that you know is supporting you Mm, and believes in you and wants you, wants you to succeed. I think, so yeah, let other people read your stuff, but find that bosom friend who will also read your stuff, but also will kind of like carry you um, and encourage you when it gets discouraging because it's going to be discouraging at right. various points. So we are getting close to the end of our podcast, although I kind of feel like we've been talking for five minutes and 
I want more. Uh, but I have one more question for you, yeah. but then I want to give you a chance to talk about some of your uh, projects specifically. How do you then incorporate the great tradition or you call the, the our Christian heritage yeah. in your work as a playwright? Is that something you do intentionally or is it just kind of part of the air you breathe and so it makes it in there by osmosis? How how does that happen? I think it's I think it's more by osmosis. I try to there's always the danger of writing like melodrama and propaganda if right. you have a set of convictions. And I, the, the best, I, again, I hold up Dostoevsky as sort of the exemplar of someone who had a strong set of convictions. And I think there were Christian convictions. People dispute that, but I, I think that he was, his Christian convictions to me, I think are pretty clear in his biography and in his writing. Agreed. There's, there's something about his characters. Alyosha from the Brothers Karamazov is a monk in training and he has he is devoutly christian but he never ceases to be real he's a real character every moment and he he is not just the mouthpiece how do i say this he's not like an allegorical representation of christian yeah and he's not dosievsky's voice there are things that he says and believes that um i think that dosievsky probably consider a little bit naive but he's so he's a true embodiment of christian conviction and he's also just a very real character and i think that that's the stuff that lasts is the characters have to be true they've got to be true so hopefully that comes out in my writing through osmosis Hmm. i love that so what are you working on right now, Tim? And how how can those of us who are all in on what you're doing as a playwright, how can we be involved in it? What, where can yeah. we find your work? Well, the easiest thing to do would be to go to timamacintosh.com. I mean, if you're at all curious, I have samples of some of my work there. It's hard about playwriting, or I should say play performing, is that it is so incarnational and incarnation incarnational art is in a certain time in a certain place which means you can't broadcast it um the play that i have been working on and i had a reading in downtown seattle probably six months ago is about edith wilson um edith wilson who is she she is the second wife of woodrow wilson who was the president of the United States during World War One, Or was and, he? Maybe it was Edith. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the, that's the story, <laughs> is that he has a stroke about a year, year and a half after World War One ends, and Edith Wilson secretly ran the executive branch for 18 months. I mean, it's a great story, and so few people know about it. So um, that sounds my amazing. point about Edith Wilson is the thing that I've been working on. And I've also been working on a book about the history of philosophy. Oh, that's interesting. Tell us about that. Yeah. So there's a book called Sophie's world, not Mm -hmm. choice, but Sophie's world that I know a lot of very different things. So world, not choice. Sophie's world is, I know it's read by a lot of CC students and CC teachers. And I think it is, (laughs) it's a, I think it's a good way to enter the world of philosophy in a way that's not intimidating and 
that makes sometimes complex ideas more easily understandable. For me, it's not a great novel. The character is kind of flat. So I have been working on um, a book in which the main character is actually like a real vibrant character. And she's also learning the history of philosophy um, while she is kind of like tackling this big adventure project. So that's what I've been working on. And right, I won't even tell you the title because I've changed the title like five different times <laughs> since I started working on it. So, but this is a work in progress. It's not something our listeners can get their hands on right now, but hopefully, not yeah. Not yet. I will, I will keep us posted. I will keep you posted. That's Please right. do. Please That's do. Right. I'm really excited about this project. Thanks, Heidi. So it's Tim- been a delight. Oh man, thank you so, so much for coming on the Forma podcast today and talking about your work as a playwright um, and offering encouragement and helping us enter into the world of somebody who is doing the thing, right? Not just thinking the thoughts, but doing the actions, feeling the feelings and, and living that in a very human way. I greatly admire that in you as a human and as a professional. Uh, so I look forward to future collaborations. Thank you so much for Me being too. on the podcast. And for our listeners, uh, if you want to hear more from Tim McIntosh, go to his website. Uh, you said Tim it's a, what? Say it again. TimAMcIntosh.com timamacintosh.com and then head on over to the Close Reads Podcast Network and subscribe to Close Reads, the Close Reads Podcast and the Plays the Thing. Right now, Tim and David Kern and I are talking about the Odyssey on the Close Reads Podcast flagship show. And then Tim is talking with Sarah Jane Bentley, who's a teacher over in England, teaching young men about the classics. So, and y'all are talking about Othello. Othello. We're about to record our th- the third act of Othello. All right. Darkness. Darkness Dark- is happening <laughs> over, over on the place, the thing. So if you're interested in demystifying Shakespeare a little bit and entering into a conversation about Shakespeare all the time, head over to the place, the thing on the Close Reads podcast network. And over at Forma Journal, exciting things are happening. The summer issue is at the printer and about to have, go out to y'all's mailboxes. So if If you haven't subscribed to Forma Journal and all of its uh, subscriber content, book reviews, uh, weekly emails, different projects that we're working on over there, please go to formajournal.com and subscribe. Thank you to those of you who are following along with us at the Forma podcast. We'll see you next time. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.